the field that this ain't exactly real or it's real but it ain't exactly there from the war against disorder from the sirens night and day from the fires of the homeless from the ashes of the gay democracy is coming Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People, radio buying for the 99% for March 25th, 2023. Our intro music, Leonard Cohen's Democracy, is the same all the time. It's because it's so appropriate. And you're listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 1015 KFGM, no punctuation, .org, O-R-G, and available on podcasting, anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. I am Jim, the sound man. Today, in Western Washington State, and I'm joined by Linda Gillison and Mark Anderley, which means we span all the time zones. We are voice of the people, coast to coast, Woo! the show with the most. <laughs> hey, Jim. Hey, Linda. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. I'm Good. here. I'm upright and uh, conscious. <laughs> can sit up and take nourishment. That's right. right. (laughs) FCC didn't hear that. (laughs) So we broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes in our very own time zones. Which are all, but more ordinarily, they could be in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai. Let's not people. talk about daylight savings. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, contra- that's too controversial for this show. Yeah, I know that's right. Some things we won't touch. <laughs> yeah. So Jim is in the ancestral homeland of the of um, Puyallup tribe and the Lummi tribe, a little further north. And how about and, you, Linda? Yeah. And I'm um, I'm Linda, and I'm from, um, I'm out in North Carolina, sort of in the Piedmont. And I always say, since a lot of Indian groups and tribes and families have been around this, this uh, area, I always say I'm from the homeland of the Lumbee people, because I'm mm. hoping to get the Senate off its dime. Ooh, and, and I'm yeah. sure they're listening, because this is a coast-to-coast program. That's right. Um, and get them to uh, <laughs> give federal recognition to the Lumbee. Right on. Right. So you already well, have it for the Lummi up here. <laughs> yes, that's well, right. And despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part by wearing masks when you are inside in public and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is uh, pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And uh, as always, we want to give old Mick a shout out. Mick, hey, I hope you're doing well. Hey, Mick. 
We want to see you back. Yeah, especially the guy who's doing your your job and still has a lot to learn. (laughs) Well, we have a good show today. Uh, Later in the show, we feature an interview of Jonathan Modell, perhaps the Dean of Citizen Ballot Initiatives in Montana. And he will uh, speak on the threat to such citizen democracy posed by Senate Bill 93, now before the Montana legislature. And we have an editorial by Tony Davis as well on the problems with the railroads. That's a whole lot more for your community radio dollar. Yes. Amen. I look forward to hearing that as well as the rest of the show. So uh, as long as I'm here in Washington State, I'll stick around. Oh, that's good news, Jim. (laughs) Otherwise, like Diogenes, I will need to find an honest man to replace you. (laughs) <laughs> and and I don't own a lamp, so I'd have to go out and buy a lamp, I think. But yeah. I'm well, I've got you. an LED headlight for my bicycle. You can use that. <laughs> That's a modern updated version, right? That's yeah. right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you're here. We've sometimes lost Jim. Everybody doesn't necessarily know that. Mm-hmm. So this is not an unreal, um an unreal threat that we face. That's so. right. That's right. We're glad you're here, Jim. Yes, we well, are. Well, thank you. And I um, I want to thank my sponsors today, um, Audacity Brewing in Snohomish, Washington, who said I was welcome to use their public house to do the voice of the people. It all seems to fit. There's continuity and a lot of background noise. <laughs> all right. So... This is that special time of the show when we introduce the word of the week. And for this week, it is citizen, which we all learned is a Latin cognate. <laughs> for, for, right. That's only right. just in time. Only That's just. right. <laughs> well, and a, and a word that is not used as much now as it was some years ago, as I recall, anyway. Um, some people use the word taxpayer or consumer, or voter as a substitute for citizen, which I think diminishes people into their assigned roles in society, language that disrespects the whole person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. For sure, yeah. And I wonder who was the origin of each, I mean, it's interesting to think, who originated the practice of calling us all taxpayers? Mm. Or calling us whatever. I mean, what was their rhetorical reason for doing Mm. that rather than wanting us to be known as citizens? Because I'll bet it wasn't an accident. Yeah, I bet you too. And and I think (laughs) I think if if listeners stick around, you might find some hints at how that might have come about. Oh, good. Just like an Easter egg hunt. A little ahead of schedule. (laughs) Hey, that's fair. That's very topical, Jim. (laughs) Yeah. I want mine to be chocolate please oh <laughs> uh, i want mine to be existential oh, <laughs> oh we gotta move along now so it it appears there is more than one way to define citizen yeah quite right jim um first <clears throat> let's go to the cambridge dictionary shall we um which says Quote, a citizen is a person who was born in a particular country and has certain rights or has been given certain rights because of having lived there. 
And a citizen is also a person who lives in a particular place. That's kind of a general definition I've been seeing online for, for citizen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that seems like a current uh, definition. And as you, as you say, it's more like sometimes an inhabitant or something like that. Uh, but it does mean a very passive sort of irresponsible um, situation, right? It yeah. doesn't mm -hmm. to do anything, right? Thing, but right. it just says what somebody else said we are. Yeah, or what something someone yeah. else has given to you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, should we presume that the the word has evolved? and morphed since it was uh, first coined. Yes, that's a good, that's a good assumption. Um, and as regular, so before we jump into that though, as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as our reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include this note about Wikipedia, that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. And as reporters Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal wrote in a June 11th, 2020 article in the gray zone, quote, Wikipedia has become a bulletin board for corporate and imperial interests under the watch of its Ian Randian founder, Jimmy Wales, and the veteran U.S. regime change operative who heads the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Maher. So they they <clears throat> I wish they would not min, you know mince words they just say what yeah, they think right yeah, um, anyway that said according to wikipedia in ancient greece slavery permitted slave owners to have substantial free time and enabled participation in public life polis citizenship was marked by exclusivity inequality of status was widespread Citizens had a higher status than non-citizens, such as women, slaves, and resident foreigners. The first form of citizenship was based on the way people lived in the ancient Greek times, in small-scale organic communities of the polis. Citizenship was not seen as a separate activity from the private life of the individual person, in the sense that there was not a distinction between public and private life, kind of like uh, the... Uh, Third wave feminists would say the political is the personal, right? I mean, wow. I, I, that really recalls that. Um, back to Wikipedia, the obligations of citizenship were deeply connected to one's everyday life in, in the polis, the city. These small scale organic communities were generally seen as a new development in world history, end quote. Mm. Gotcha. Um, that's really interesting because when you mention because you know me, I'm an old lady who reads about a lot of old things. <laughs> you used to get paid for that. I used to get paid for that. But it's, no, no, you're 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 a class. You're a classic lady Classicist. that reads a lot of classics. Yes. There right. you go. Okay. Thank you. But I'm, I was interested in your um, in your statement that Polis citizenship was marked by exclusivity. And it was an article that I read for a paper many, many years ago. And the title of it was something like, uh, a, something like uh, the polis, oh no, um, Pericles funeral oration and schismogenesis. 
schismogenesis. Whoa. Way, way too big for me to spell. But anyway, yeah, a schism is a schism. And a genesis right. is creation of a schism. And really, the author was trying to say that what when Pericles described Athens in such a uh, shining, perfect gotcha. way, he was creating, mm -hmm. by definition, a group of everybody else who was not the same. Right. So when he talked about how wonderful Athens was, he was creating a schism. This in the second year of the Peloponnesian War at, oh. a, at a public burial for all of the people who had um, who had died in the in the war that year. And uh, he really was saying Athens is everything beautiful. And he didn't say anything about anyone else. But you don't have to. If you just keep on saying how wonderful the U.S. of A. is, you don't have to say anything rude about anybody else. So that's, that's right. So schismogenesis should be the word for oh. next week, I think. Whoa. Right. Whoa, that would be a popular show. And okay. thank you for introducing the term a second time because that it, is. Was, it is um, my, you know, frontal process are as wrinkled as the skin over top of it. So <laughs> now I know schismogenesis Schismo. sounds like something Marshall McLuhan would have said. <laughs> maybe. And maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe. He, okay. Canadians well, are capable of anything. That's my <laughs> only meaningful contribution to the show. Today. Okay. <laughs> schismogenesis. Okay. I'm gonna be well, and I don't know if he ever talked oh. about this, but I have mm -hmm. been quoting Aristotle lately and, and today is going to be no exception. Uh, again, from Wikipedia, the obligations of citizenship in ancient Greece were deeply connected with everyday life for yeah. those who were citizens. To be truly human, one had to be an active citizen to the community, which Aristotle famously expressed as, quote, to take no part in the running of the community's affair affairs is to be either a beast or a god, end quote. Mm. Wow. This, form, this form of citizenship based on the obligations of citizens towards the community rather than rights given to the citizens of the community. In Athens, citizens were both rulers and ruled. Important political and judicial offices were rotated, and all citizens had the right to speak and vote in the political assembly. End quote. And I will just add to that that the free time to do this was made possible by the ownership of slaves. Today, we truly live in, in a so-called post-scarcity age when there is, uh, and maybe there's argument about this, but I, I think <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Don't get there, you started. <laughs> there is, where there is enough of the basics of life for all people, but it is not distributed to all. Oh. That, that means to me that if we want a true democracy with active citizens, we need to distribute the basic necessities of life to all people thereby freeing them up to give them free time to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it will only be the well-off who get to participate in democracy because those who struggle to get life's necessities have little to no time to participate, much like what we have today in the United States. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Isn't that do you true? concur, Linda? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I'll just speak since that's what I do. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is really interesting. And um, and in fact, Pericles, in that speech that I was just mentioning, mm -hmm. where he created 
Schismos, Genesis. Genesis. <laughs> right. Um, he Sounds says, like a high school cheer at a ball game. Yeah, exactly. He says, we in Athens expect everybody to be involved in what's going on. Everybody who's anybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, to be involved in what's going on. And people who are apragmos, that is, non-doers in the political scene, in the gotcha. scene, we call and this is always offensive to people who hear it the first time, an idiotes, an <laughs> idiot, right? Mm-hmm. And But yeah. it's not really that. An idiotes is just a private person, right? But for us in the United mm-hmm. States, modernly, we tend to say, we call such a person an idiot and then laugh about it for a while. So there you go. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's on AM talk radio. Yeah. That's on AM talk radio. Yeah. <laughs> And I, you know, I do believe that we have the enough for the basics of life for everybody, but we don't divvy it up because right. Absolutely. we're busy creating schismoid, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's why, that's why socialism is so important for democracy. What Aristotle is saying, essentially, is that to be fully human, one mm-hmm. needs to be taking part and running the community's affairs. And remember, Aristotle also said, man, anthropos, is by definition a political animal. Yep. An animal who lives and wow. acts in a, yeah. He also said that if your elephant is um, insomniac, it'll help if you rub him behind his ears with salt. So, Wow. So that's a hint from uh, Aristotle for everyday yeah. life. For, yeah. Yeah. Fact, um, and so for at the next show, I think we could so, talk. About animal so, care. so bring a lot of salt with you when you go to the next CPAC meeting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. In fact, but any case, that's what. That's good what Catholic boy that I am, I'll bring blessed salt to make sure that the <laughs> remedy works. Well, salt also <laughs> kills slugs too. So anyway. maybe that's what's causing the insomnia. Who knows? Well, in any case, but that's that's the deal. Aristotle says to be a real human being, you have to be involved in the polis. You have to yeah, be involved mm-hmm. in your city state. So, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So, the, so mm-hmm. did the Romans have a unique definition of um, yeah? Well, they of citizenship. Yeah, they they did, and they took a little. They took a different turn, right? Um, maybe mm-hmm. as the Wikipedia article suggests that it may be due to maintaining empire, right? But in any event, it says, uh, uh, and it has big implications for how we see citizenship in this country today. Uh, this is Wikipedia again. In the Roman Empire, citizenship expanded from small-scale communities to the entirety of the empire. Romans realized that granting citizenship to people from all over the empire legitimized Roman rule over conquered areas. Roman citizenship was no longer a status of political agency as it had been reduced to a judicial safeguard and the expression of rule and law. Rome carried forth Greek ideas of citizenship, such as the principles of equality under the law, civic participation in government, and notions that, quote, no one citizen should have too much power for too long, end quote. Witness Rome- Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Yes. Of March, right? If you have too much power for too long. Right. That's right. Gather around you and stab you. That's <laughs> right. That's right. 
Um, yeah, this all connects, right? Yeah, um, it all connects. It makes sense. Right. But right. Caesar salad for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it didn't stab you in the stomach, but right. um, yeah. But uh, Rome offered right. relatively generous terms to its captives uh, compared oh. to the Greeks, right? Including chances for lesser forms of citizenship. If Greek citizenship was an emancipation from the world of things, the Roman sense increasingly reflected the fact that citizens could act upon material things as well as other citizens in the sense of buying or selling property, possessions, titles, goods, etc. Historian J.G.A. Pocock explained in 1998, quote, the Roman person was defined and represented through his actions upon things. In the course of time, the term property came to mean first the defining characteristic of a human or other being, second, the relation which a person had with a thing, and third, the thing defined as the possession of some person, end quote. Mm. Big, big turn there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the Greeks defined citizen in terms of their relationships with one another in their own communities. The Romans, on the other hand, saw the advantage of citizenship to secure their empire and began to define citizens in terms of their relation to things such as property. Yeah. But the Romans really did not say officially that everybody in the empire was a citizen until I think it was the seventh, the second century AD. No kidding. They they had these motivations that you were talking about, Mark, but I think it was also a way of getting people into the army. Hmm. Oh, so, that's oh, being able to that's use always it. how it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah what a yeah. cynic. But um, yeah, so it's kind kind of like Constantine much later on said, okay, Christianity can be a, a you know a, a a religious, a religion of the empire, no more persecution, whatever. And a lot of scholars believe that the reason he did that was because he needed people in the army and the Mm. Christians had protested against the militarism of the army and the whole empire. Mm. So he said, we'll say Christianity is okay. And that way I'll bring them in and they'll be willing to serve in the empire when we're in the middle of this bad, bad time for the empire. So, So they yeah. kind of co- co-opted the Christians. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And you know, Linda, you said enough for about the next 15 shows because if you, <laughs> thank you, because you yeah, because they take off the Friday afternoon. Right. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, what's, what's the, the public right, house you're going? The yeah. guy with the beard and the long hair that arose uh-huh. on Sundays in a couple of weeks exactly. was called Prince of Peace. So right. he, you know, he wasn't a warrior god. He wasn't Odin. No. You know, he uh he he espoused people don't kill each other, be nice. Right. But then you have an empire who needs people, and you say, Well, you can be a Christian as long as you're a staunch, you know, vigilant warrior. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Constantine, I don't know how you pulled that off, but yeah, well, Good Constantine for you. was Constantine. I guess. God was on Constantine's side. We all know that. <laughs> but, yeah, and the thing is that Constantine did the big thing about converting, right? He right. converted to Christianity, and that kind of leaves the road open for other people to be Christian warriors. 
onward Christian soldiers and all that. Well, oh, he, good point. He, here's here's another here's another uh, piece from Wikipedia that uh-huh. um, helps give a little more class um, uh, to the, to this discussion. Roman citizenship. This from Wikipedia again. Roman mm-hmm. citizenship reflected a struggle between the upper class patrician interests against the lower order working groups known as the plebeian class. A citizen came to be understood as a person, quote, free to act by law, free to ask and expect the law's protection. A citizen of such and such a legal community of such and such a legal standing in that community. So in other words, citizenship Uh meant having rights to have possessions, immunities, expectations. The law itself, the law itself was a kind of bond uniting people. Roman citizenship was more impersonal, universal, multi-form, having different degrees and applications, end quote. And this brings us again to the fundamental Mm -hmm. struggle of the haves and the have-nots, right? The Roman Mm -hmm. Empire seems to have solved the problem for the wealthy class patricians by granting the working class plebeians legal rights, but not the economic freedom to be fully human by taking a full part in running the community's affairs. Although we know over the history of the Republic that the plebeians were given increasing what we would call political rights, right? Right, right. The right to act in certain ways that they were not allowed to act um, before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have as much power as the... uh as the uh, um, patricians. <laughs> mm-hmm. They didn't have as much power except, well, anyway, it's a long except, except for rioting, maybe, right? <laughs> That's right. right. They kept seceding, remember? Right. Yes. They, the poor people early in the empire, early in the republic just right. We want out. bread and circuses. That's right. That's right. Don't Pacifies. start me singing bread and roses now because... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it all three of them. Yeah, so I think it, I think that's a good that's a good. Uh, uh, well, it's it's all it also has to do with what was the power of the senatorial class, the wealthy class yeah. versus what was the power of the plebeians, and really the Senate ruled more. Governed more by authority, which is the way the community feels about you and gives mm-hmm. you certain offices, right? And the plebeians didn't have so much power, so much authority, right? So, right. yeah, it was very kind of in front of the screen and behind the screen sort of thing. Yeah. Right. right. So, so mm-hmm. driving right to the 21st century. <laughs> What <laughs> what does the modern citizen look like today? <clears throat> well, uh, and this is this is really interesting from Wikipedia, and it's and and just think about uh, politics in the U.S. today when you hear these descriptions. Okay, um, so modern uh, from Wikipedia, modern citizenship has often looked on as two competing underlying ideas. The first idea is the liberal individualist or sometimes liberal conception of citizenship citizenship suggests that citizens should have entitlements necessary for human dignity. It assumes people act for the purpose of enlightenment, enlightened self-interest. According to this viewpoint, citizens are sovereign, morally autonomous beings with duties to pay taxes, obey the law, 
engage in business transactions and defend the nation if it comes under attack, but are essentially passive politically. And their primary focus is on economic betterment. Hmm. This, this idea mm-hmm. began to appear around the 17th and 18th centuries and became <laughs> stronger over time, according to one view. According to this formulation, the state exists for the benefit of the citizens and has an obligation to respect and protect the rights of citizens, including civil rights and political rights. It was later that the so-called social rights became part of the obligation for the state. In some countries, and so I'll just stop uh, the quote from Wikipedia, what they mean by that is that in many uh, sort of social democratic countries around the world that taking care mm-hmm. of people, their essential needs was also part of that agreement. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Now, the second definition, the competing definition to that is the civic Republican or sometimes classical or civic humanist conception of citizenship, which emphasizes humans' political nature and sees citizenship as an active process, not a passive state or legal marker. Is relatively more concerned Mm. government will interfere with popular places to practice citizenship in the public sphere. Citizenship means being active in government affairs. According to one view, most people today live as citizens according to the liberal individualist conception, but they wish to live more according to the civic Republican ideal. An ideal Mm. citizen is one who exhibits good civic behavior. Free citizens and a republic government are mutually interrelated. Citizenship suggests a commitment to duty and civic virtue, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, I'll buy that. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I know we're going to talk later on about, um, I mean, we've talked before about classical liberalism versus mm-hmm. liberalism and so on. Mm-hmm. So right. when you're talking about that first definition, I, I thought of that. And then I thought of the individualist part. And that strikes me as something that's really important in when we get to the part where we're talking about labor actions and labor right. unions and so on, yeah. because one of the issues there seems to be uh, that American in America, labor unions and people don't think of themselves in terms of group identity, but in terms of individualism. So it's hard, partly because our society thinks of us that way and partly just, Mm -hmm. well, whatever. Um, It's it's difficult to get American workers, let's say, to think about themselves as workers first and not Americans first. Because in America, we tend to think so much about what your individual rights are. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead, if we were strong international union people, we would think of ourselves as all working together. Right. For rights, whatever they are. Right. So I think I was thinking about that earlier today when I was doing some reading that that individualism thing, which is part of classical liberalism as the philosophy mm-hmm. right. is really it's just not working for us too well or right. at least not in the way it, it, and that's exactly would like it to work yeah and yeah. that's that's exactly the i think the point is that the the u.s is highly individualistic it's way too on one side uh and so it's hard to get as you're saying linda it's hard to get people to think themselves as a group 
In fact, the individual cannot survive without the group, right? And we right, are social right. animals, as Aristotle was completely <laughs> yeah. pointed out. We're political animals and always have been. Um, but I would suggest that the next step forward for democracy from Ooh. all of this is uh -huh. to combine these two ideas, right? This, you know, the, mm -hmm. the old uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? Um, uh, coming from Hegel, that... Uh, that these two ideas, the liberal individualist and the civic Republican conceptions of citizenship into a new idea of citizenship. Hmm. Um, right. The idea that all people have individual rights to free speech, assembly, religion, equal treatment under the law, but also mm -hmm. housing, food, healthcare, education, among others, while having the duty to participate in running their community's affairs, including the economy. And for me, this is what democratic socialism is all about. I, I think we're on the verge, really, of trying to combine these two things in, right. in some helpful. kind of thing beyond what's called liberal democracy, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, into something that's a, a lot more uh, vital and, and, and uh, it, <clears throat> basically ennobling of, of all of us. Yeah, but it's amazing. What, um, yes, and it's amazing. Um, how hard our public discourse in the United States makes that if we still keep on talking about socialism, right? Because that's just a buzzword for so many people. Right. They think whatever it is, they're afraid of it. Mm -hmm. We've yeah. been taught that capitalism, right. that socialism is. So it's going to be hard, I think. I, I yeah. hope you're right, Mark, that we're getting close to doing that well i i think there's some there's some you know and it's no guarantee that that'll happen right but you know if if democracy is to really move ahead um it's got to include these things and i also think too that part of the hope is that there are plenty of people who self-identify as republicans okay who who maybe in the classic sense take on this kind of social responsibility <clears throat> or, or political responsibility is is borne by the individual um, that uh, uh, we've been taught for a long time. You know, those in the grow up democratic, right? Uh, mm -hmm. that Republicans were the, you know, or today it's like Republicans are the embodiment of evil, and the Republicans think that the Democrats are the embodiment of evil. But I, mm. I, really, I really think it's more uh, it. it, it it's it's sort of bad leadership on both sides that are 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 causing mm -hmm. that conflict. I think that there is there's lots of room to combine these two things together, and um, and it's only it, you know it, it's division. It's the uh, a, a schiz, schizogenesis. Schism. A schism. Yeah. A schism. Right. You said yes. the magic word. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> That that it's you know that that people that want to keep things the same right are definitely employing that deliberately in order to divide people right. you know from these different sort of philosophical trends right and that the trends themselves are not incompatible except for if you believe the garbage coming from uh, those who would create schisms right right and they're on both sides on they're both on sides both exactly. Sides. Yep. And so, and I think right. that's the garbage is, mm -hmm. it seems to me because the garbage includes what mainstream media 
says largely or doesn't say um all of that garbage is is far more um widespread and louder yes than the the idea that you've just voiced yeah that these are not and even and even if it's given lip service people's actions people who Mm -hmm. have don't act it out that way right right right. so yeah i think that that would be grand and i I, this is why we have this show exactly that's right at at that at that nub so right and yeah this is this is not uh, focus group schizogenesis (laughs) <laughs> this is their, this, in case you right, were afraid right. of that we want to let you know we're not we're, we're not going to package stuff up and have a product at the end of two hours right so schizogenesis shuts people down a lot it I sure does that. I... and so does the news from this week because Ooh. it was so challenging yes to up with so I don't. I don't. I, so I guess we should just spin the wheel and see where it ends up. What? 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 <laughs> it what, always what? ends up on COVID. Yeah. We know yeah. it. To, know. to begin with, yeah. Um, uh, it's so that's COVID's going to be first of our current news. Co- Go ahead, Co- Mark. You I, I mean, the, there there was only one. The drama. There was only one time this show during the pandemic that COVID was not number one, and that was the whole George, George Floyd, uh, right, uh, uh, time. So. Anyway, uh, despite 26 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the United States, the pandemic is still with us as the uh, so-called vaccines are actually unable to prevent infection or transmission. Um, On March 10th, the Johns Hopkins University has stopped collecting data on the COVID pandemic. Hmm. Now we will be taking our COVID data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC website. As a note on the CDC, many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers because of the prevalence of unreported home tests, lack of uniform data reporting requirements by the states, and the incompetency of the CDC. That being said, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now falling at a rate of about 19,000 cases a day. It's 19,000 cases a day. That's still quite a bit. Uh, It's down from over uh, 1,382,000 per day on January 10th, 2022. How soon we forget. Mm -hmm. Um, um, At over 1,140,000 deaths, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. The U.S. has so far accounted for at least 16% of all the deaths in the world, and even with unreliable data for 15% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Jim? Yeah, and this is when Jim says, yet again, those are still grim things to be exceptional at. Yes. You can throw schismogenesis into that sentence. Yes. Who 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 would have thought schismogenesis would elicit laughter? Exactly, um, or would even come up five times. In I know hours. that. Well, I'm glad we're keeping track. It's all about data. That's what news is. It's just data points. This is data points. So yeah. So what's the situation, schismogenetically speaking, of um, uh, COVID in Montana, Mark? Well, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website, Montana has 
had 3,693 deaths from COVID. That's 37 deaths in the last two weeks. That's way too many for a state our size. That's a lot, yes. This total number of deaths is about equal to that of the population of the town of Glasgow, Montana. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a steady rate of about 100 new documented cases a day. Fully 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID. And, and the, the number is bigger than that. But mm -hmm. um, And there are currently 46 people hospitalized with the virus, down 11 from two weeks ago. We have been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when you are in public spaces indoors, to distance yourselves from others as best you can, and to frequently wash your hands if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. Yeah, so... Yep. so be a, a citizen Republican and wear that mask. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, um, I... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jim, go ahead. Oh, Jim was just going to say, what's our next story? Oh, yeah. Well, let's go ahead. Let's All right. go ahead. Well, um, if, if any of our listeners have any question that the wealthy and the corporate oligarchs run this country... One only needs to look uh, at the depositors in the Shishi Silicon Valley Bank and their <laughs> bailout by the federal government. I the thought bank... I was the only person that used that term. Uh, yeah, I, I thought of you when I uh, wrote that. In <laughs> oh, Shishi. so flattered. <laughs> um, the, the bank's failure was the second largest in U.S. history. And also they bailed out the third largest uh, bank that went bankrupt in U.S. history or that failed in U.S. history. Wow. Um, the congressionally established laws and rules for bank depositors is that the federal government will guarantee any deposit under $250,000. Now, you can throw out those laws as the Federal Reserve Bank apparently will now bail out any deposits, um, if even over $250,000 without an act of Congress, without any input from ordinary people, and I might add, without any vision. Over 90% of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured, which either shows that the managers of the bank were incompetent to put their bank at such risk, or they were smug in their confidence that they would be bailed out, or both. Yeah. Both. both. And I believe, now I wish I could remember the name of this act that they did. Um, remember, um, I think it was while I was still in Missoula, um, the Senate passed some kind of an act which removed larger banks uh, from some regulation. And John Tester voted for that. Mm -hmm. And he said... Ooh. Wink, wink. And, uh, you know, I voted for a tester every time. Uh, but he he said the reason he was doing it was to protect small banks. Mm -hmm. And so then the issue is, where do you draw the line? Right. And everybody would want them to protect, you know, a small bank that's just in a city and it, do it doesn't belong, have a whole lot of money and it gives people. Mm -hmm. But but clearly that's not where the people who wanted this act to be passed by Congress were going. They were going yes. for, let's raise this level so that more of our sort of 
medium size, mm-hmm. um, medium size banks get a help also. And now right. they're trying to yeah. And now they're trying to call the Silicon Valley Bank uh, a medium sized bank. Well, let, you know. Oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The biggest fail is a medium sized bank. Yeah. Well, I'd yeah. love to see a big bank then. Exactly. <laughs> no. Well, well, that and- would be officially too big to fail. You know, back in 2008, 2009, when we had that crash, who was the head of the Fed then? Uh, that was. Oh, gosh. Um, what was he? Uh, ben, ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke, yeah. Oh, I well, yeah, okay. In case I, I heard one politician say on television, Wolf Blitzer asked him, why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? And he just said, well, uh, with this look, you know, kind of deer in the headlights uh, look, <laughs> well, I just thought they wouldn't do something that was self-destructive. Oh, Ooh. that's the well, regular speaking they did. Oh, Yeah, yeah. I was hoping they wouldn't do that. I was hoping they Who would be I, the guy in charge. I have no control. So, uh, you know, it's and and this time we've done something the similar, mm-hmm. right? They've gotten themselves in a bad bad place. Right. We're maybe not all going to crash, but they've gotten themselves in a bad bad place by taking advantage of all of this lack of regulation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. once again, they've done something that's would be suicidal, except they've been bailed out. But don't worry, Biden told us that the oh, oh yeah. no, no, that's okay. That, yeah. that, that the taxpayers will not be anything, pay anything. So. Yeah, right. We've heard that before, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. And there's there's no financial industry in Delaware, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Cue the laugh card. Yeah, the home <laughs> of the corporation. The exactly. The corporation. So, yeah. Isn't it in the interest of the banking system and capitalism? To bring stability to the system, I mean, this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Jim. Yeah, but, if, but if this isn't a truism. Yeah, it, it, Texas, it, I tell you what, Bubba, if it that is, ain't but, a truism. I don't know what it is. But there's, but there's a huge contradiction here that they can't resolve, right? So right. our e- our economic managers are supremely committed to maintaining the privilege of the corporate corporate oligarchs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. And but to bring stability to the system, they have to do both. Right. And um, this basic contradiction is proving to be too far beyond the reach of these managers, as well as the political establishment. As Susan Weber, also known as Eve Smith, if if you catch that Eve Smith, <laughs> Adam Smith. Right. Uh-huh. Um, Adam and Eve. Oh, OK. I never got uh, it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad you're in it, part of this crew on this show mark yeah. <laughs> well That's i'm so happy obvious. to be here <laughs> yeah, thank you. well we'd be lost if you were not <laughs> well anyways uh susan weber eve smith um and she she uh, we quote from her a lot from the her blog naked capitalism which mm-hmm. is essential reading for yes. anybody uh, especially when it comes to finance um she wrote in her book econ <laughs> The most likely outcome of the financial crisis was paradigm breakdown, as in repeatedly attempting to patch up the current system, which is what we're seeing the Fed do right now, Mm -hmm. rather than engage in fundamental fixes, which would produce greater and greater dysfunction, eventually producing political instability, end quote. So given the Federal Reserve's seemingly rash act to bail out these depositors, 
it seems that they are panicking somewhat because within the bounds they have set for themselves, they have no real answer to address this crisis except to kick the can down the road. Which, of course, which is what happened during the Obama administration. They just mm-hmm. they bailed out the rich. They let the uh, the, the, right. the poor consumers of bad mortgages uh, fall under the bus, and then he then mm-hmm. they just kicked the Geithner and and uh, uh, Larry Summers just right. said, okay, we're going to kick the can it. down the road. You fix it, but yeah. But there is yeah. continuity there because Geithner wore cowboy boots, so maybe. Oh. So, so then maybe, I like then so I maybe, like him. So maybe he and Galbraith are are friends somehow in some way. <laughs> yeah, I I doubt that. Um, <laughs> but you know, which kicking the can down the road just means bigger crisis down the road. I mean, that's right. all that. And so we're in the middle of staving off catastrophe by kicking the can down the road. Right. It reminds me of our friends in the United Kingdom. <laughs> which oh. seemed to be even doing worse using the same yeah. scheme. Right. Right. I think that's right. Mm. Hi, this is uh, Tony Davis. I'm an organizer for the Western Montana Democratic Socialists. Um, I did work at Ford Motor Company for quite a while, as did my wife. And um, one of the things we learned was from W. Edwards Deming, who uh, really organized, made Japanese uh, automobile companies much more uh, competitive. And one of the uh, quotes my uh, wife remembers is, if you want to know how to fix a problem, ask the person doing the job. So if you want better rail safety, ask a rail worker. The train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, is an example of what happens when you don't listen to those who are a lot closer to the situation and know a lot more than you do. A Norfolk Southern train carrying vinyl chloride and other highly toxic chemicals derailed after safety equipment failed to detect an overheated wheel bearing in time. This happened under conditions where the jobs of workers responsible for monitoring such situations had been eliminated by the railroad as a cost-saving, profit-fattening move. Norfolk Southern did not even report the train was carrying high-hazard materials. Private video from a local resident showed what appeared to be a wheel bearing on fire on the 23rd card in the final stage of overheating failure moments before the derailment. The train had 149 cars and a three-person crew. 50 cars derailed, including 11 carrying hazardous and toxic materials. The National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, was on the scene within six hours. Their preliminary finding is that indeed, a bearing in the process of overheating was not detected in time to stop the train. Railroaders had repeatedly warned that overwork and understaffing were creating conditions ripe for a disaster. This was the major reason why back in December, that was uh, towards the end of last year, railroad workers voted by 99% to strike from the Railway Workers United Union. Why has there been such a spike in derailments and fatalities? We believe the short answer is precision scheduled railroading, PSR, in which trains are operated by fewer people working longer and more irregular hours. PSR allows running longer and heavier trains 
utilizing fewer locomotives, expediting train and engine in inspections, cutting back on tra track maintenance crews, and allows cuts to practically every aspect of the operation. PSR is proving to be a disaster. A compliant Federal Railroad Administration has turned a blind eye to its effects and to those most directly affected, rail workers and the public. It has given the rail industry the green light to self-regulate. It's been remarked that the Federal Railroad Administration is a captured railroad regulator, meaning captured by those who are regulated. In this case, the major railroad companies and their lobbyists. This situation has continued over both the Democratic and Republican administrations. The captured regulator allows such monstrosities as precision scheduled railroading. Now, Norfolk Southern is the nation's fourth largest railroad with a record $12.7 billion in revenue last year. Both North Norfolk Southern and the Association of American Railroads, the standard-setting organization for North American railroads, promote themselves as a backbone of the nation's economy in a safe and relatively green way to transport, transport freight. At the same time, labor leaders and federal officials say both of them adamantly resist any pr proposed regulations and oppose new safety standards while searching for loopholes through existing rules. It's profits over people, says Kenny Edwards, Indiana State Legislative Director for the Smart Transportation Division and Ind Industry Workers Union. As they make cutbacks and changes, disasters like East Palestine will be more and more prevalent. On February 21st, the U.S. Department of Transportation put out a press release calling on the freight rail industry to live up to its obligations to keep communities and workers safe. The DOT laid out plans to hold the industry to a higher standard of safety while reinforcing accountability and penalties for freight railroads. Conservatives so often say that regulations are bad, inhibit business, create unnecessary jobs. Really? Ask the people of East Palestine, Ohio, or for that matter, ask a railroad worker. What's next in the news, Mark? <laughs> well, our, our so-called leaders thrash about in an economic crisis of their own making, citizens, ordinary working class folks, are taking matters into their own hands. Um, as evidence, first off, is the school workers in the Unified Los Angeles School District. As Megan Giovanetti and Jasmine Joseph report in the March 20th edition of In These Times, quote, several thousand showed out for a rally which was organized by United Teachers of Los Angeles, UTLA, the tenacious union representing 90% of the city's public school teachers and SEIU local, which is Service Employees International Union, Local 99, which represents more than 30,000 cafeteria workers, bus drivers, custodians, special education assistants, and other service workers in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Both unions are negotiating new contracts with the, Los, with the school district. Over the last 10 months, UTLA has had more than 25 bargaining sessions with district officials, while Local 99 has been negotiating since April 2022. According to uh, Bianca Gallegos, the union's communication director, 
The two union struggles have national implications, much like UTLA's historic 2019 strike when more than 30,000 Los Angeles teachers walked out for the first time in 30 years, inspiring strikes in California uh, and across the country. Arlene Inoue, UTLA Secretary and Bargaining Team Co-Chair, says the strike, quote, really uplifted social justice and racial justice as key demands and showed how teachers' unions could use labor contracts to win public services to the entire community. Inoue says, we often say that our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. And I'm just going to break there. That that really was, I mean, the Chicago teachers did the same. There's right. been unions the same. Bargaining yeah. in the community interest. is yeah, West Virginia, too. Yep. Uh, West Virginia. And, uh, you know, that's what um, uh, Jane McAlevey calls whole worker organization or something yeah. like uh, that. Oh, yeah. Engage not only the worker in the workplace, but everything else that's going on in their lives. And that's, that's right. support the whole community. And, and that quote from Inoue, the union representative, said, we often say that our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. Right. That's so true, right? Um, so if you include things like you want more school nurses, it involves people in the community who are concerned about their children in school, but would not necessarily be concerned that you're going to make more money or right. Or whatever, but you pull them in by talking about the things that benefit both of you, right? Right. Yeah, they go together. Absolutely. Um, UTLA's uh, 20, this is back to um, uh, the article. UTLA's 2019 campaign tried to improve both, advancing common good demands such as immigrant student support, a ban on random metal detector searches of students, and piloting a green spaces program, which parks and neighborhoods, right? Mm -hmm. Um, UTLA partnered with Reclaim Our Schools LA, a coalition of families, students, educators, and community organizations in their 2019 contract campaign. The deal they negotiated expired in 2022. These two groups are now coming together again to build on their older demands. Inoue says that the uh, United uh, Teachers of LA Officers have canvassed every school to gain input from students and staff on issues they care about. According to Inoue, the union also held community forums inviting parents and local organizations to answer the simple question, what do you want to see in this contract? The resulting platform, which is called Beyond Recovery, was not just something UTLA came up with, the union came up, says Eloisa Galindo, member of the group's Eastside Padres Contra la Privatación. <laughs> I butchered that one. Um, and, oh, the, wow. and the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment Action and longtime um, uh, LAUSD parent. She said, the Beyond Recovery platform is something that was built from community voices. Folks came together to voice their needs, Galindo adds. The platform argues that LAUSD's, the school district's nearly $5 billion 2023 budget surplus, which includes state and federal COVID-19 relief funds, is an unprecedented opportunity to address the devastating levels of community and family trauma, economic stress, emotional isolation, and racial inequity laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
says, in a way, we want to create a platform that goes beyond recovery from the pandemic. We have a real vision, end quote. That vision is to establish public schools as centers by and for the community, which would mean offering counseling support instead of police, an immigrant defense fund, a comprehensive climate justice curriculum, support for unhoused youth and families, community schools, clean water, and protections against charter schools on public school campuses. Yes. The Beyond Recovery platform also includes demands such as adequate school staffing, which would not only benefit educators, but also students and families. Uh, Mm -hmm. Carlson Elementary special education teacher Bruce Lay said at the rally, since the pandemic, society has changed for the worse, citing an increase in mental health issues among students. He said, it is better to get kids back in school, but the support they need is not there. Lay said uh, the school district needs to, quote, reduce class sizes, pay teachers better because inflation is 10 percent. We can barely live, provide counseling and other services to the school, end quote. Jessica Escalante, a parent and special education teacher at Carlson, said at the rally that, quote, the wages are too low. That's why the school district can't get people to work. And that increasing staff pay would be a step toward addressing short staffing throughout the school district, end quote. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. That was about the most impactful three or 400 words I have read in a long, long time. (laughs) It really lays it out on the line and say, a school is more than reading, writing, arithmetic and teaching, you know, um, the, the next generation of the community to be obedient and servile employees and know their place. And instead says the school is the foundation. It is, it, it, it nurtures the polis. It teaches people all the skills they need to be, to be citizens, which sort of ties the whole show together. Very good job, Mark. That's, I'm really that's impressed. right. That's right. No, outstanding. Outstanding passage. Yeah. And I, I think I read sometime <laughs> that the average, um, the average uh, income of a member of the SEIU, this, this. Yes. The, yeah, the union. Uh, is yep. about twenty five thousand dollars in, in Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. That's that's correct. And you know it's happening everywhere. It's happening oh out where people cannot live where they work because they can't find housing in Bozeman. So as you were saying, this is going in every which direction. Yeah, or it's going in every every arena. But I think I hope Americans will finally decide we cannot. No. Continue. Yeah. I mean, there's is it, and, there's a limit to how many, you know, housing you can have in a dumpster and keep subdividing it. It's and it, you know, this you know, is, that's this an is interesting analogy. Yes. Yeah. Well, well and, I could have said shipping container, but dumpster well, is something it's people recognize more. More more, yeah. Well, Linda, you're right about that twenty five thousand dollar average income from working as a non teacher in the LA school district. Yeah. You can't live on that. Um, And note, though, um, what's interesting is the kind of organizing they got to this point. So they had tens of thousands of people at this rally. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and the uh, uh, and it was a two day basically um, on Thursday. Well, Friday they went back to school. Wednesday they went out on strike. It was two days. They had scheduled three days. Not sure why they only did two days, uh, but um, but it was in solidarity with these the the workers who are making twenty five thousand dollars a year on average. And so the teachers were acting in solidarity for their coworkers, basically in the schools. And they do this by, and this this goes back to McAlevey, right? And about the CIO method of organizing, mm-hmm. that is the foundation for all of this activity. They would not have gotten tens of thousands of people out on the Too rally. Much. They would not have had this strike unless they had organized. And one of the... Th- Parts about that organizing, which I've been having, you know, they see these problems and the purpose of organizing is getting the power. So you create a crisis for those people who want to keep things the same, whether that's the administrator of the school district, whether that's a governor, whether that's a president, whether that's a head of a corporation. You want to create a crisis, so they have to come back and negotiate with you. That's the whole point of a strike, right, is creating a crisis. And people will say, well, it's inconvenient, all that kind of stuff. But you know what? That's that's what creating a crisis does. Yes. And because democracy will never catch on. It takes too many Thursday things or something like that, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. I um, So... I have a friend who does this kind of community community organizing over in a, a county near me, and she gave a talk to us in, in a group one day, and she said about organizing, you cannot organize only for an election. Right. You've got to be right. organizing right. all the time, and you've yep. got to be have the kinds of relationship with people that they will step in and say, a big part of this problem is that these people don't get paid enough, but it all washes back on us, which they wouldn't likely think if they didn't know each other, right? right? So oh. if, they, if they didn't come to trust each other in some way, right? Oh, I got you. As, as workers or however else, because you taught my child or whatever, it, um, yeah. that would not work. And and I absolutely agree because that's what mm. organize, organizing is taking a diverse even people who don't believe in unions, for instance, or believe in political organization or who believe in a tenants union, you get people together and you you help knit them together into an organization that um, creates the crisis for for those who want to keep things the same. If you're mm-hmm. not able to do that, right? you won't these things don't happen. And so we're going to be looking at, France and Germany and Britain here, also workers in those three countries right. on strike. It's the same deal there, right? They they mm-hmm. can't they can't walk out. They can't do these kinds of things unless they follow the method, the organizing method that helps build this power. Gotcha. So, Mark, should we? Since since we're so focused on time zones, should we? Are there yeah. issues on the other side of the Greenwich Meridian? They're, Just asking. <laughs> yes. Well, even on the Greenwich Meridian, too. I think that's, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, we move on to international news and first to France and then to Germany and then uh, Britain. Um, 
Uh, It's both. Thank you. From from a report on Democracy Now! for March 24th, quote, French unions say that nearly 3.5 million people took to the streets Thursday in a nationwide general strike to protest President Emmanuel Macron's deeply unpopular move to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Or from Democracy Now!, uh, President Macron forced the legislation through the French National Assembly last week using a constitutional clause to bypass a parliamentary vote. Macron's oh, that's always popular. Yeah, no, that's right. Parliament, whatever. Ma- Macron's government survived a vote of no confidence Monday by just nine votes. That's pretty, pretty slim. Yeah. But public anger shows no sign of abating, with France's major trade unions planning another nationwide protest for Tuesday. Uh, quote, Uh, Oh, this is journalist Cole Stranger from Marseille. He says, not only is the government trying to do this pension reform that people see as fundamentally unfair, but they're ignoring historically large protests, even by French standards, end quote. Saying a lot. Yeah. In Bordeaux on Thursday, this past Thursday, the town hall was set on fire. And in That's Paris, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. And and in Paris, police fired tear gas at protesters who included transportation workers, garbage collectors, teachers, students, and more. Uh, and this is uh, a quote from Carl Lefrancois, who was a participant in the uh, general strike. He said, "We are here today because it's out of the question to once again raise Too the retirement work. age." You have to understand that some people work in difficult conditions. And today, these people are told that not only do they have to work longer, but also nothing prevents the government in the future to restart this type of bill. It's time for them to understand that people also want to enjoy their lives. That's a radical idea. We're not here to die on the job. We're here to be able to enjoy life one day too, end quote. Mm-hmm. That's worker dignity, right? That's that yes. is. That's that's kind of this is what really we're aiming at here. Right, as, right. And and the the end of the um, Democracy Now report says as protests continue, a visit by British King Charles. It's hard to say, King Charles <laughs> to France has just been postponed. Striking workers had said they refused to roll out the red carpet for him. France's eight largest unions have called another nationwide protest for next week, end quote. Because France, right? I mean, that's great. Why aren't we all out in the, right? Because we think of ourselves as little individuals. That that is the essential question right there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, let me may I ask quickly, I'll just ask a quick question and you probably know the answer. Remember several, several years ago, way before Macron, some other neoliberal was there, um they tried to do this same thing and it raised the the retirement um, right. bar or whatever. And it turned out that at that stage of the game, I mean, usually here, we don't want to work so much. We want to, you know, and Americans and Gianforte will say, bull, 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 get out there and work, right? Right. Um, Make it make us some profits. (laughs) Yeah, make Mm -hmm. some profits. Get out there and make some profits. Um, But then it turned out that that a lot of young people from the the suburbs were uh, rioting also because if you raise the retirement age, there are fewer jobs open for young people. 
Right. And right. At, that time, at that time, I don't know what it is now, but at that time, the unemployment rate amongst young people uh, in France was high. And by mm-hmm. the these young folks got out there and said, hey, that means there aren't any jobs opening up for us. So we don't like it either. So it's not just that right. French people don't want to work. Right. Yeah. And, and remember, the reduction of work hours was not to make life easier on people. It was to incre- increase the demand for more workers. So you have the, right. the same number of work hours yeah. being yeah. done yeah. by the workforce. Is it time for the the last story? Second to last story, Germany. Second. Oh, oh gosh. Um, I'm sorry. I forgot about that. Yeah. So, well, we turn to Germany, and which is undergoing a major economic crisis right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that crisis was ignited <laughs> um, by the economic sanctions placed on Russia by the West and by the blowing up of the Nord Stream right. pipelines that carried Russian natural gas to Germany. The last was most likely carried out by the Biden administration to bring Germany uh, back into line with the U.S. empire. Skyrocketing inflation, the closing uh, or shrinking of many German industrial concerns, and more have been the result. Uh, This Mm -hmm. report is from the new site, thelocal.de, Deutschland, Mm -hmm. on March 23rd. Quote, Staff at airports, ports, the railways, buses, and subways will walk out during the 24-hour strike, which will start at midnight in the early hours of Monday, this coming Monday, mm-hmm. and last all day Monday. The Verde and EVG unions announced on Thursday. For the first time, the unions also wanted to shut down portions of Germany's motorway, the Autobahn. This could technically uh, this could technically possibly via the federally owned Autobahn um, GmbH mm-hmm. uh, Incorporated, whose staff will also participate in the action. Uh, Verdi Chief Frank Wernicke told a press conference, quote, we think there will be extensive participation in the strike, end quote. It follows a series of strikes in recent months in Germany in numerous areas, from the postal service to airports and local transport. Like in many other countries, Germans are struggling with surging inflation after Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent food and energy costs soaring. Verde, the union, represents some 2.5 million public sector employees, while EVG represents workers on the railways and at bus companies. It is rare for unions to join forces to call a strike in Germany, and it follows a series of failed talks with employers in recent weeks, end quote. Wow, they're turning French. <laughs> Don't say that ah. in Germany <laughs> or in France. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, so workers are, you know, they're fighting back, right? And effectively, mm-hmm. it's uh, hopefully. Um, What's the last story, Mark? Well, as in Germany, inflation has savaged workers' take home pay in Britain. Mm hmm. As reported in The Guardian on March 23rd, quote, the wave of strike action continues to sweep the United Kingdom, threatening to bring the country to a standstill as workers across the transport network, National Health Service, and civil service take industrial action in in rows over, and that's the British way of saying it, in rows over pay and conditions, end quote. The Guardian has... Uh, I might note the Guardian has even published a calendar noting which public service sectors will be on strike and when. <laughs> oh, okay. So get your scorecard. 
Hello, I want to welcome all of you to the 13th episode of the Montana DSA podcast. Uh, this is a, a series of podcasts uh, produced by the Helena chapter of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. And as I said, this is our 13th episode. Our guest today is a person that I'm sure many of you know uh, because of his uh, public uh, activities over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, concerning issues of very important, of great importance to Montanans. Our guest is Jonathan Modell. He's an attorney in private practice, or he was an attorney in private practice from 1981 through 2013. And in that role, he authored nine citizen initiatives and defended Montana's campaign finance and campaign practice laws. And then in June of 2013, he was confirmed as Montana's Commissioner of Political Practices. He served in that role until May of 2017. He has received honors from the Montana Justice Foundation, the Montana Public Interest Research Group, Common Cause, the Montana Bar Association, and the Montana Trial Lawyers Association. He can tell us more about his own history, but I also know that uh, in probably a very early part of his life, he was uh, working with uh, and for Ralph Nader a consumer advocate. So I want to uh, just mention that Jonathan published an article on March 8th in the Daily Montanan called An Attack on Direct Democracy Straight from the Legislature. And I'd like to just turn to John, welcome him to our podcast and ask him to uh, tell us more about those concerns um, that you have and that you expressed in that article. John, good, good morning. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here. And I apologize to you uh, again, um, Frank and, and Marshall, for my inability to get my Zoom working on my computer this morning. So the people listening are going to have to do this by voice. And um, I apologize to them as well. Um, so the article that you mentioned, Marshall, was an article asking the um, or just notifying the public that there is a bill moving through the Montana, the 2023 Montana legislature that is, um, is a direct attack on the ballot issue process. Um, and it urged people to contact House members because it, the, the bill has already cleared the, uh, the Senate. Um, Senate Bill 93 is set for hearing in the House State Administration Committee at 9 a.m. on um, March 21st, which is which is Tuesday of of this coming week, we're 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 um, recording this on on March 18th, so three days three days from now, 19th, yeah, 20th, 21st, which is Tuesday. Um, so I don't know. Maybe when you're listening to the podcast, that time has passed. Um, if you're still within range, you might want to contact your legislator. Um, Frank, you, should, should I now describe what Senate Bill 93 is? Yeah, tell us more about it, because although quite a few of our listeners, I'm sure, are up on what that is, as well as many other bills, they may not uh, know exactly oh. about uh, this Senate Bill 93. Okay, well, it, um, it, so Senate Bill 93... Um, obviously because it's got the SB number, Senate bill originated in the Senate. And what it did was it rewrote the 
existing law that governs ballot issues governs ballot issues, and that law um, had a, um, a a poison pill in it. Um, House Bill six five one, which was one of the products of those um, conference committees in the two thousand twenty one legislature, uh, put some radically um, intrusive and harmful uh, changes in Montana's ballot issue process weren't subject to a hearing comment. They just got stuck in. And those changes um, were were two. Uh, so the nine ballot issues that I wrote, I worked through three state agencies. You go first to the legislative services. They take the language that you're offering on behalf of citizens and they make sure it conforms to the exact language that they want on bills in Montana. They, they use a device called the bill drafting manual. So they offer non-substantive suggestions for you to change it, but you work through legislative services, you take their suggestions and most of the time you take them and then you file that, that version of the law um, that you're proposing to place on the ballot so electors can vote on it. You, you, you send that to the Secretary of State who advances it to the Attorney General who then uh, assists in writing the yes and no uh, statement that appears on the ballot. And I, I know listeners are familiar with that. When you see a citizen ballot issue and you vote on it, there's a, there's a small description of it on there. That's the language that the AG um, puts on. The rest of it, the, the citizen advancing the initiative does and that is the language that appears on the petition that is presented to electors if enough signatures are gathered then that initiative advances to the ballot and gets voted on yes or no well what what that bill did that was that advanced at a conference committee late in the 2021 session did is for the first time it advanced um, executive branch agencies from ministerial functions on ballot issues to actual substantive functions. The attorney general under that bill now has authority to determine whether or not the ballot issue is unconstitutional. If he determines it is, he can, he can take the ballot issue out of the process entirely. And that citizen cannot advance that language um, and he did just that in 2022. He removed a ballot issue. The sponsor of the ballot issue had to challenge the removal um, by filing a case in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court reversed the Attorney General, but it was too late. He couldn't, sponsor couldn't get the, the issue on the ballot anymore. There wasn't enough time to gather signatures. The second thing that HB 651 did was it allowed the Attorney General to unilaterally insert on the on the, on the ballot petition itself language saying that the the ballot issue interfered with the business interest of a particular business in Montana, and you can imagine what that would have done if payday if the reform of payday lending had been under this new authority, um, it would have changed the way that the ballot sponsor was able to put that particular ballot issue on the ballot. And what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is that lawmaking um, reserves under our Constitution, under Article 3, Section 4, 
it says flatly, the people may enact laws by initiative on all matters except appropriation to money. The people may enact laws. It doesn't say the people um, with checks by the attorney general um, may enact laws. That the legislature inserted in there. And that's wrong. I mean, it, you, you can challenge it on constitutionality, but it's just flat out wrong in terms of respect for the roles that people play in lawmaking. And, Mark, and Frank, I feel like I'm talking too much. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I, that's, that's really good background on, on how we've gotten to this particular uh, Senate Bill 93. But, you know, I know from uh, reading your article and having been involved in the Citizens Initiative process myself, that uh, we have a hundred year history uh, of, of citizens taking action in this way. And because of those uh, ballot issues, we have lobbyist disclosure, a ban on revolving yeah. door lobbying, reasonable contribution limits to candidates, a tax on tobacco, a ban on payday lending practices, and a ban on cyanide heap, heap uh, leach mining. All things which uh, some of our uh, more, uh, uh, well, conservative uh, corporate legislators uh, did not want to have happen. And so when they're adding uh, now in Senate Bill 93, uh, unbelievable restrictions in scope and, and imposing a $3,700 filing fee for ballot issues, uh, it sounds like this is uh, um, a, a deep attack on the citizen ballot, ballot process that needs to be uh, fought. It is. It is. And it's, it's just, it, but even though you can say it is legally wrong, it is unconstitutional. I, I think it goes more than that. It is It is morally wrong. It is unfair. It, there is a relationship between um, people and the way they're governed. And you go all the way back. You remember the freshman philosophy when I think it was Rousseau who argued you're freest when you're in jail because you've agreed the law. You've, you've agreed to the way we, we govern ourselves. Well, we, we have representative democracy in Montana. We have a hundred, and it's a large size group. If 150 of us meet up at the legislature and we pass laws, but that representative democracy is not the end all of lawmaking. The people enact laws directly by themselves. And so to have this type, type of a, 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 how could 150 legislators forget what their role is and be unfair by trying to take away the role of citizens? Um, it, it is preserved in our Constitution. And as you said, it's preserved in our 100-year history. And in the past, it's played tremendous um, political roles in this state. It, it is credited, the 1912 um, Anti-Corruption Act is, is credited with, with really being the most significant um, uh, ven or, or means by which uh, corporate control was weakened in Montana. So it, it's just wrong. And now you hear this. You hear legislators who listen to something like I just said, or something that Frank has said to them, or something that another citizen has said to them, well, they say, um, you know, we're just not going to 
vote against it, even though we think it's wrong, because the courts are going to strike it. And therein lies the hidden agenda, I think, on this thing. How much can you put on our court system? The more we ask our Supreme Court to do, the more we ask the judicial system to do, and even though we've got Article 3, Section 1, the power of the government of the state is divided into three distinct branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. So they're distinctly separate. But the more you, you ask our courts to shoulder, the more you play into this argument that the courts have to be reined in. And so now we've got these things that they're doing to the power of citizens to act directly. And Senate Bill 93 not only takes what HB 651 does and rewrites it and, and gives it even more credence because now it's in new law and reorganized, but it adds to it, as you said, that $3,700 filing fee. And if you think about it, if the people can act, can pass laws, and the legislature can pass laws, then why isn't a legislator who offers a bill, why don't they pay a $3,700 fee to create a law? Why do citizens have to pay a $3,700 fee? They have a co-equal right pass laws. They pass their laws directly rather than through representative the government, rep representative government, they have that right. So now you add that fee. And then in addition, they've, they've amplified the way, um, the way that the legislature can write what they think about a citizen initiative on the face of the petition. So that petition, which is citizens, a citizen or a group of citizens talking to their fellow citizens, the electors, that's the face of the petition that the elector looks at and decides whether or not he's going to sign. That is supposed to be the communication from one citizen to citizens as a whole. And the legislature and the attorney general aren't supposed to be in there writing on that. They're, it's not their law. It is the citizen's law. To me, I find that just as wrong as the $3,700 filing fee because you're, you're interfering with a form of communication which is constitutionally preserved. It's direct communication. It's direct democracy. And so that's wrong too. And then finally, you know, and this, this is probably the least understood of what this thing does, is it changes all the timelines. The, that all of those nine initiatives that I worked on with the agencies performing ministerial functions, and that was through multiple attorney generals, multiple um, secretaries of state, and multiple people in legislative services, that was all done in a very, very tight time frame, so that the citizen proposing the initiative could get the petition and go out and gather signatures. And now, under Senate Bill 93, the lobbyists know exactly what they're doing. They've created, they've loosened up all those tight time frames, and they've added lots of time. It probably doubles the time now that these agencies are going to spend, and the legislature are going to spend handling a citizen initiative. Um, and again, that's wrong, because how does an average citizen, 
how do you move your language through these executive branch agencies when they're going to rewrite your petition? And now they can take all this time to hold it. It really interferes as well. So you got any questions? On any of that well, no, I was, I was just going to say, well, in addition to those more details of how that's an attack on, on the power of citizens to, uh, to make laws, that they uh, think that the uh, either the legislature uh, has avoided or doesn't want to. Now, with the Republicans uh, having this uh, supermajority in the legislature, um, this Senate Bill 93 is only one of many, many uh, challenges to citizens uh, or to uh, you know basic things like you might say science, when they define sex in a way that goes against uh, ordinary uh, genuine science in our in our days, um, but I was going to ask if if you thought that this uh, movement in Senate to get Senate Bill ninety three is really a part and parcel of that larger movement um, uh, for dark money and corporate power, uh, trying to make sure that uh, citizens are sidetracked in their concerns and those efforts other efforts in the Montana legislature this time to uh, uh, put more restrictions on the judiciary. You might say, you've mentioned that this would uh, possibly lead to more uh, uh, legis you know, challenges in the, uh, in the courts, but there are all sorts of other challenges to um, the independence of the courts in, in saying that, uh, for example, that Article Two of the uh, Constitution on privacy uh, does not, as the Supreme Court of Montana said, uh, apply to abortion issues, uh, and and so they're they're taking over uh, the roles of both citizens and of the court system. So I mean, it sounds like this is uh, Citizens United uh, in some hidden form, uh, giving corporate and and partisan Republican control over so many things that ought to uh, have checks and balances. Well, I agree with everything you said, but okay, so I've been working on direct democracy issues. Um, but I started my law practice in 1982 and almost immediately began lobbying in the Montana legislature. So I lobbied in the 80s, the 90s, 2000, and then, of course, I was commissioner for four years. Um, and during that time, if you went into the legislature in the 80s on direct democracy, your strongest allies were going to be the Republican conservative populace from eastern Montana. They believed in direct democracy. Um, and, of course, the Democrats did too. Um, and, and they believed in, in citizens and they, they would have believed in the rule of law. They would have believed in the constitution. And Frank, so when you say Republicans now, it, it, it isn't, and I know this has been written to death, but the, the Republicans now uh, are not the rule of law populist oriented. And, and they weren't all like that, of course, but there were a number of them. That style of Republican is gone. And what you have now is, is, is the corporatist Republican. 
the institutional Republican. And they're the type of Republican. That, and again, they aren't all like that. They're, there's a, still a smaller group of Republicans who don't feel that way. But nevertheless, they pit where they're going to fight. And if they see something like Senate Bill 93, um, and they don't think they've got enough votes to kill it, they're probably just going to go along with it, and it's going to fly through. Um, and that leads to the second part of your question. Is there a greater purpose in this besides just passing something which is, which is morally um, wrong, which is completely unfair, which disrespects the history of Montana and is constitutionally in, unpermissible? Yes, there is. I think it's part of the greater agenda to weaken our courts. Um, the more you ask our courts to do and the more they have to strike laws, the more vulnerable they are to being postured as, uh, as something that is, that is acting wrong. You know, and I know that cuts both ways. You can say the legislature is acting wrong, but it just becomes a, um, a PR campaign. So I don't like to see things that are completely unconstitutional. They just don't make any sense pass through the legislature um, because we're adding another burden to our courts. And, um, and that the more you expose uh, a political entity um, and, the, and the more you ask them to do and the more they do, the more then it is said that they're controversial um, and that exposes their, their, their power to review. And um, in this case, it's completely unfair. The courts are not controversial. The courts are not um, acting improperly. It is the legislature, which is controversial, which, which is controversial because it's disrespecting the other uh, venues of power that are established in Montana. Um, and doing it deliberately, I think, with bills like this one. So in that sense, this is part of a um, more uh, ideologically radical uh, initiative and movement to... Uh, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's what played out. I mean, if you read some of the more scholarly analysis of these, like democracy and change, chains, this is part of the movement that's been going on for almost two decades in the United States where the moneyed interests rather than just fighting on, on one issue at a time have, have gone deeper with think tanks and, and, um, and, uh, issues like this, which not only have an immediate purpose, but a long-term purpose by isolating the courts. Um, well, you know, just as you, just as you were about to say uh, the book Democracy and Change by Nancy McLean, I was thinking, isn't that what she was describing in her book, uh, Democracy yeah. and Change? Yeah. And uh, another, book, uh, another book that comes to my mind is one recommended to me by uh, retired Justice Jim Nelson, uh, who uh, said we, every, every lawyer and every person should read We the Corporation. Um, yes. Which is, yes. Which is, you know, describes those larger forces that are uh, active. And I know that 
you have been uh, dogged in, in tracking down these uh, anti-democratic uh, uh, forces when you were the uh, com commissioner of political practices, um, you know, having gotten hold of uh, all these dark money uh, materials that were hidden down there somewhere in Colorado uh, that showed that uh, lots of people in Montana uh, were being influenced in their elections by secret money. Uh, and then, of course, you uh, pursued that very diligently and uh, eventually were responsible for indicting the uh, Senate uh, leader at that time. You challenged it, but the Montana Supreme Court upheld the uh, the uh, the uh, what do you call it the decision to uh, hold that person uh, responsible for the crimes that he was committed. So it's a deep, deep thing. And so, do you imagine that you would be involved, or groups that you know would be involved in challenging the constitutionality of Senate Bill ninety three and similar bills? And secondly, if um, those are actions, you know, by persons with legal expertise that might be taken. What are other things that might be taken by citizens to counteract these uh, regressive laws that do uh, diminish our democracy here in Montana? Well, um, so just to go back on that, Frank. So I think the seminal thing that happened was on April 1, 2016, a a Helena jury of 12 people chosen the way all juries are chosen at random. Um, although there's a process by which attorneys talk to them and remove those with prejudice, that sort of thing. But that jury of 12 people returned a verdict and found the former Senate president, Art Wittig, um, had illegally coordinated with that national right to work group that had provided political support to him and a number of other candidates. So I think that's the significant thing. Now, the Supreme Court sustained that verdict, but it was the 12 people. And that's why, I mean, I, I have such confidence. I might not agree with what Montana people do directly all the time, but I have a lot of confidence that a decision by Montana's people as a majority, I can respect that and live with it. Um, even if I don't agree with it, I will respect it and live with it. Can I feel that same way about our representative democracy right now? I don't. I don't think it's functioning within its role. And once the representative government moves out of its role and does things like it's doing with Senate Bill 93 and, and other things that infringe on other political roles reserved by our constitution, then, then, you know, we, we've, we've got a problem because, um, citizens have to be able to respect the institutions that they've created. And if you go back to democracy and chains, that was the whole purpose of what all these things are. If you undermine people's faith in the government, if you undermine the way in which government functions properly, then you've achieved what the corporate entities want, which is a weakening of government. If I'm saying it and a conservative is saying it for different reasons, you've weakened our government. And who then is the dominant political force if you weaken our government? 
corporations. That's who's left standing. And, and that's why they win. Um, they win if they pass the law, they win if they don't pass the law. Um, because the ultimate goal is to weaken government. You mentioned before that um, in the past, Republicans, in especially in eastern Montana and also even in the Helena area, uh, such as uh, Gene Donaldson, was a Republican uh, that you may remember from maybe 20 years ago or so. I do. Uh, I do. These people were uh, reasonable uh, and committed to understanding the Montana Constitution uh, and its respect for citizens' essential role as we the people, as the real power. And what what was it that happened in Montana so that um, Republicans and, and other people who used to be more, um, you know, appreciative of citizens' role and, and, and the role of democracy, whatever happened to uh, that Republican Party? Uh, and and those folks who uh, uh, now are leading these SB 93 efforts and, and other efforts, which people have said are basic challenges to uh, parts of the Constitution that we, we, that we cherish, including you know, the right to privacy and how it has protected the right of women to uh, ha uh, have abortions in Montana uh, or other, other kinds of... Uh, uh, challenges that are now going into the legislature. What, what do you think happened in Montana? And what, what are some of the remedies that might, might uh, be something that we can uh, participate in to uh, renew and you know, reclaim uh, democracy uh, as a uh, vibrant entity here in Montana? Well, I think it's a combination of, of a very old political practice, which it wasn't reinvented recently, but that's gerrymandering. So there's an instinct in both political parties to preserve the the um, the districts in which they have power. So you gerrymander to create safe safe districts. We've um, we have an independent um, uh, redistricting committee in Montana, which um, which takes away the worst of it. We're not. Uh, we're not on the East Coast or, or places where it's very, very bad. But nevertheless, our districts generally create safe districts for a Democrat and safe districts for a Republican. And that means that the new, um, the real election in most of those districts is the primary. And that is what that National Right to Work group understood in 2006 when they began to to recruit and support um, uh, very conservative and um, uh, almost radical candidates in these Republican primaries, and were successful in doing that. And those that approach has carried over to this day. So I think what people have to do, particularly if you live in a live in a Republican district, is um, is understand that the real race in your district is is Republican or Democrat. I don't know which type of district you live in, but um, I have family in in the Bitterroot, and they well understand that the race that is of importance to them is the Republican primary. 
And that may be the race that you have to get active in. Um, and that may be difficult for some Democrats um, or um, independents, um, progressives of any sort to, to deal with. But that's the reality um, of politics in Montana. If you want to create a more respectful Republican caucus, then you're going to have to go back to the Republican primary and, and recruit a candidate who is more respectful of the different sources of power in Montana, direct democracy, Democrats, the, the courts, um, that represented, you're, you're only one of, of three independent political powers. The power of the government of this state is divided into three distinct branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. And um, that legislative branch has ignored that and is seeking to, um, to concentrate that power in one branch, legislative. And so if you're going to deal with that, you're going to have to deal with it in the Republican primaries in the state of Montana, at least under the system we have now. Well, you know, as John, as you mentioned in one of your articles, you're neither Republican nor Democrat. And that also describes my situation. I'm not a member of either of those parties, but I have been involved in efforts to, uh, uh, in, in various primary, well, primary and general elections to uh, work for candidates. And one of the things that we discovered back in 2015, 2016, when uh, a lot of us were um, working to um, have an alternative to the corporate Clinton, Hillary Clinton candidacy, uh, we, we supported Bernie Sanders and we put, we put Bernie Sanders on the ballot here in Montana and Bernie Sanders won the Democratic primary in Montana. In fact, Good studies say that he was probably the most popular candidate to defeat Trump uh, back in 2016. Well, at any rate, what I'm saying is one thing we found, or what I didn't say, was that one thing we found was that although there are 56 counties in Montana, the Democratic Party only had operations of central committees in 30 of those of those uh, uh, counties. And so if, if there were to be alternatives to some of those uh, ideologically uh, corporate Republicans um, who are taking actions that uh, you have described as really detrimental, uh, it would seem that even though you and I are not members of the Democratic or Republican Party, that uh, given the fact that those two parties seem to dominate the, uh, the landscape, that Democrats are going to have to get off uh, of their rear ends and start uh, doing some good organizing all across Montana in ways they have not done for uh, many, many, many years. Well, um, Frank, I might disagree with you a little bit on that. If, if I were living in a heavily Republican area, I would join the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think the reform has to come in the Republican Party, not in the Democratic Party. Um, that's where these legislators are coming from. And yet human beings in Montana are wonderful people. You, I, I mean, I've hunted on their land, um, and, uh, I've listened to them. They're good people. And 
if if you are embedded in a community, um, and I know the Republican values that we see now espoused in the legislature are not good, but I don't think that's the values that that are necessarily held by the bulk of Republicans. Um, and tough as it is, and as much as you you might have to deal with um, with values you do not share, you, you most of us face that in our families. Um, we we don't families don't necessarily share all the values um, universally, but that doesn't mean you give up your family members. That means you love your family members and you still deal with them. And so uh, as strange as this may sound, um, you know, you can still vote the way you want on the ballot. That's secret. And nobody knows the way you vote on a ballot, but the time you spend and invest in a family, in a political family, in a community, you have to really look at where you can best invest that time. And if you're patient and considerate, um, you, you, you should, if you're in an area that's entirely Republican, that's the, that's the community of political power that you want to influence. And so you shouldn't place yourself outside of it automatically, but by, by joining something that doesn't have influence, you should, I, I think you should move into where you can influence. What do you think about that? Frank? Is that a ball? No, no, that's, that's a great challenge uh, because, well, first for most people, um, they're not involved in either the Democratic or Republican Party in any significant way. And, so and that I, they they attend the, the they do not attend the uh, the monthly meetings of either the Democratic or Republican Party. I do uh, find myself well. I didn't find myself, but I added myself to the Montana Republican uh, uh, listserv, and so I get emails from uh, Don Kleinschmidt uh, almost every day. And I can say that it would be a challenge for me to find a way to become acceptable uh, to Don Kleinschmidt, but I do know lots of good people and, re and Republicans. And as you said, um, the situation is that we may have to you know, sort of work from within the Republican Party. That's a different. That's a difficult thing for for a lot of people who have um, been so. Um, distressed by what has happened currently in the Republican Party. So I, you know, I did run as a Democratic candidate back in 1980, and I actually would have run in the uh, general election against Gene Donaldson, except I found out that uh, I was in violation of the Federal Hatch Act, which meant that if your salary was paid for by federal funds, you could not run in a partisan election. So I, I looked... Uh, Looked that law, and I found I had to either get a new job or that. But for most people, it would be you know getting active in ways they have not been before. And like you, I I, I would say I've met people in almost every city of Montana when I worked, except for Plentywood, which I never got to. And I found beautiful, wonderful people there who care about each other, full of love, and and they 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 could be the future of the state. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I want to Frank, give you the thing. chance to. No, go ahead. 
you should go to Plentywood. There's a library in there on, and, and that was the corner of Montana, as you know, where the, the political discussion was the most intense. That, that was at one time they had a communist party that was dominating in that corner of Montana. And a lot of that material's in the library in Plentywood. So it's a fun place to visit. I've heard about Plentywood just recently. A person was on Facebook saying, you ought to really come to Plentywood. It is a beautiful place and people are good there. And so, you know, inviting people to come over. So it would be, I think I'll wait till yeah. uh, the snow. I wait till the uh, roads are better. <laughs> we'll, we'll go to visit Plentywood. John, I want to give you the chance to yeah. uh, wrap up our discussion here. And, uh, thank you. But to, uh, you know, finally say whatever else you might have uh, wanted to say about uh, democracy in Montana or about Senate Bill 93 or about challenges to the judiciary. Well, I, I guess I would say this, Frank. It's, it, 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 you know, I'm, I'm 75 now. It's a little late to change. Um, but I do think I made a fundamental mistake in, in my youth. Um, you know, I marched in the first Earth Day. I marched in the anti-war marches. And I got so focused on issues that I, I developed a, um, um, like a kind of the political parties don't matter attitude. And that was wrong. I, I should have stayed more involved in the political parties. And I don't know if I can learn new tricks to this day. And I really don't have to, because I'm very satisfied with the democratic representative and Senator that represent me. Um, but I would encourage people like me who became issue focused. Um, we have to now understand that issues aren't driving these things anymore. It's the political parties that are driving it. And much to the detriment of the country, I think. And that it is time for us to get back involved in the political parties. Um, it, it's where the action is happening now. And um, that's the reality of what it is. And it, it, we need to, to rethink it and we need to, to get involved. And um, I would encourage everybody who's listening to consider that as an option for their time. So thank you. I enjoyed this, Frank and, and Marshall and, and um, your listeners. And I'm so sorry I couldn't get my Zoom working. Um, Jonathan, we want to thank you for your uh, conversation today with us. Uh, I want to thank everyone who is listening to this. This is the Montana DSA podcast put together by the Helena Democratic Socialists of America chapter. It's our 13th, 13th episode. And um, we hope that this thoughtful discussion from Jonathan Modell, former commissioner of political practices in Montana, has been helpful to our listeners. Thanks for all of you for listening. Well, thank, thanks to you, our listeners. Um, and please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Right. Thanks. And please join us every week on Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Indeed. So, dear listener, if you can't contribute, you're either a beast or a god. <laughs>